Hello, this is Roberta Fallon, and I'm here at Moore Gallery's radio station, and I'm here today with Elaine Byrne. Good morning, Elaine. Good morning. Elaine is an Irish artist who, with a research-based practice. Uh, she's based in New York right now, and her work deals with overlooked histories from texts and artworks, and she uses them as a platform upon which to build videos and sculptures and other forms of art to talk about current political and social issues that are of interest to her. So it's very, very interesting and, and quite political work, I think. Um, she makes sculpture, video, photos, and she has won many awards and grants and exhibited all over Europe and uh, in recent times completed the Whitney Independent Study Program. Um, she's in town, this Irish lady, for an event last night at Slot Hellgoers, Beckett, Dante, and Ireland, in which she read from Samuel Beckett's works. Yes? No. <laughs> Didn't happen. And had a very nice conversation with Jean-Michel Rabaté, who's a University of Pennsylvania professor mm -hmm. with a new book out. Um, so, let's see. All right. Also at SLOT, which is going on again tonight, are the screenings of three of Elaine Burns' videos, Hellgoer, um, Pure Codology, and Rock Hosey's March. And that'll be available tonight only. So if you want to see these, and I've seen two of them online, and they're really great, so I highly recommend it. Uh, go on over to SLOT tonight between probably at five onwards. Five mm -hmm. o'clock onwards, mm -hmm. okay. All right, so thank you for being here. And um, let's start right in with Hellgoer, your video, uh, which deals with Irish history in general, um, in a general way, uh, as it relates to purgatory, the concept of purgatory, and also Dante's Purgatorio, which is one mm -hmm. of the sections in uh, Dante's Inferno. Um, Apparently, there's a place in Ireland that is synonymous with purgatory, and it's called St. Patrick's Purgatory. Is, do That's I have that correct. right? That's correct, yes. Okay, so mm. explain a little bit about this complicated video. Okay. Um, well, the video starts off uh, with some scenes from this place. You're talking about St. Patrick's Purgatory. And this is an unusual site that in medieval times, frankly, the only reason you would be visiting Ireland was to go to this particular site. If you saw a medieval map from the 12th century, Ireland wasn't even mentioned on the map, but the purgatory was actually pointed out. So it was a very important place. You needed the permission from the Pope to go there. It was a very serious, dangerous um, pilgrimage place. And once you actually did get permission and you managed to um, make your way to Ireland and make your way to this particular island, um, which is up um, off the coast of Mayo, um, you were locked in a cave. And you basically, um, the next day they came and they would let you out of the cave. And the whole thing was that if you weren't there at the gate of the cave, they knew you had either been taken by devils or you had somehow died. Um, and gone to heaven, perhaps? Well, 
this was definitely a place that you went to speak to dead people. I mean, you met, you met people there and you came back with messages. So Hellgoers was actually the name given to one of the pilgrims who came from Hungary. And he himself had done some really heinous crimes and he said he killed over 280 people. And he went to do this pilgrimage um, because if you actually managed to survive the night, all your sins were forgiven forever. It was a, a complete, it was a, you know, wipeout of your slate now and future misdemeanors. So, um, and as I said, you would have these visions or you'd, one of the particular pilgrims talks about the fact that he didn't know whether these things happened in real or whether he imagined them. But he had all these marks on his body, so he was a bit confused. But the point of this is that these were really well-translated texts, and this was before the printing press. And it was kind of like the modern-day sensationalism around Europe, who had been and what they had seen and who they had met and who was in purgatory. Um, and um, Dante, for sure, had these translated texts. And there are specific references to various pilgrims where he uses some of the text from the pilgrims for his um, divine comedy and um, particularly for the Inferno. So it's, um, that's the reference between the island and, and then the Dante. Um, and then overlaid on that, I have put uh, um, issues around corruption um, within Ireland, particularly around you know, the banking um, crisis and some favorable interest rates given to certain businessmen and and then the censorship that has gone with that, that this the journalists have been censored by the courts not to report on some of these issues. Um, so that's overlaid over the kind of the medieval um, the medieval history. So I don't know Dante very much at all. Uh, and the concept of purgatory I'm very familiar with, having grown up Catholic. So I know from that. Uh, the fact that you're comparing or you're bringing in the contemporary issue of the banks and corruption and whatnot and couching it in terms of Ireland being this place of purgatory, I, I just want to go into that a little bit mm -hmm. because I'm wondering if you're saying something about the state of Ireland contemporaneously as being mm -hmm. a little bit in purgatory. I mean, there's mm -hmm. been a lot of up and mm -hmm. down over the last couple of years with the economic situation. And mm. it, is that in there at all or is that reading too much into it? Um, well, actually, in the talk last night, Jean-Michel Rabatay, who... Um, was talking with me, mentioned um, you know, this very important point about purgatory really not being an actual place originally, and then it developed to be a place. But now the Catholic Church have said purgatory doesn't exist anymore. So it no longer is, <laughs> it's no longer a place, and it's probably no longer um, a state of mind either. But anyway, um, I think it was more... The, the point more was that actually if you if you know some of these people go and spend a night on this island they can have their sins forgiven and um, there was a of bit course. of slap stick humor with maybe what I was referencing the the purgatory to um, and some of the 
contemporary issues around con uh, corruption in particular. Yes, indeed. Um, we have something similar that happened here in this country where there were all kinds of banks that cr fell apart and got bailed out and nobody went to jail, pretty much. Or one person out of, mm -hmm. I don't know, 10 or 15 that could have gone. Yeah, with similar situation, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm, tough stuff. So um, how did people respond to the video last night and to what you were talking about? Did they... Mm -hmm. Um, understand what was going on and yes I think so I think um, as I said the the conversation was also around Beckett um, Dante as well and um, Jean-Michel just has uh, a new book called Think Pig so he was bringing in a lot of references to um, you know some wider links between some of the issues that are in Hellgoers which was really interesting to to see how those links you know, form and um, you know, particularly around words like you just use justice um, around, you know, who can get called out anymore as a liar, how are facts checked? And, you know, for sure, we were all thinking very much about this current situation in America, even though it was very explicitly an Irish video. And um, um, for sure, that was definitely playing on our minds and thinking about um, politics in general and and you know there were some very interesting issues brought up by the audience around the notions of ethics and um, judgment and justice so we had a very interesting conversation around that topic mm. very cool mm. so let's move on to some of your other work um, you have a Vimeo channel mm -hmm. on which I've been able to watch a couple of your videos and I want to talk about Pure Codology, which is mm -hmm. also at Slot tonight, and Rakozy's March. Mm -hmm. Two videos that deal with James Joyce's Ulysses mm -hmm. and deal with, in fact, quirky sort of use of language and also kind of um, what have been called joke bombs mm -hmm. in Joyce. So let's talk about pure codology first. Mm -hmm. um, there's apparently a Hungarian joke in there that um, an expert says probably James Joyce was the only one in his day who would have gotten the joke. Mm -hmm. But now people sort of get it. Yeah, well, uh, they do and they don't. That's the, uh, the thing because um, the, those two works actually are derived from one paragraph in Cyclops. And the Cyclops episode is particularly interesting in Ulysses because it's the episode that, uh, well, it's very pivotal, but it also it deals very explicitly with nationalism, um, anti-Semitism, and the narrator is unnamed in the episode. And that's really the only time there's this unnamed voice that's kind of telling us what's going on in the, in the bar which is where most of the, the scene um, plays out. And obviously Ireland now, well, not obviously, but um, we're celebrating this year 1916. It's 100 years since the start of um, the revolution um, to become an independent country. And, you know, some of these issues around what is a nation are addressed explicitly um, to Bloom in Ulysses. So... I'm, I'm very interested in, and, um, in this particular episode, but within this episode, there is a, at the end, there's a paragraph 
where Bloom is departing for a place called Sazhor means Boryulash Degolas. And then in the text, it's parenthesis, the meadow of murmuring waters. And Joyce um, was probably the, so I should say, Sazhor means Boryulash Degolas is actually a Hungarian word. And Leopold Bloom, the hero of um, Ulysses, his father came from Hungary. So there's a lot of Hungarian references within the, the novel, obviously, for, for that reason. But um, Joyce and Ulysses um, were actually, Hungary was one of the last places that it was translated. Um, even when most of the other communist countries had translated and got fully on board with Joyce, Hungary was very latent to the table. Um, mostly because of um, George Lukács, who um, would have been very influential philosopher in um, Hungary, and all his followers subsequently, he felt it was very much a decadent um, modernist book and was very um, kind of against against Joyce's writing. So the reason why the jokes have stayed stayed so long, latent and hidden, was because there was really no Hungarians. Um, reading Ulysses, there was no great translations um, really until very late, till the 80s. Um, and there was no English readers who knew Hungarian so well that they knew that Joyce is mistrans deliberately is mistranslating um, the word. And um, yesterday I was with some friends um, and we were looking up their edition of the annotated notes and it's still, the joke is not still explained in the annotated notes. It's now like explained like a Google um, translate, but the the joke actually is um, it's constipation caused by the consumption of 130 portions of veal goulash, and if you say it in Hungarian, it has a wonderful kind of rhythm to the sound. Um, but even in the annotated notes, it's something like stopping up 130 veal goulash, which doesn't really explain anything about the joke. So it's this joke that really only two people possibly could have ever understood, um, James Joyce and, and Leopold Bloom, who, of course, was a fictive character and not reading. The oh, so it's, it's so complicated. Now, I, in my reading uh, about this, someone said that Joyce spent time in Trieste, mm -hmm. which is in Hungary, is it, or near Hungary, or... Well, Tr Trieste um, actually is um, in Italy, um, but at the time it was kind of situated um, a very international place, and he was living there for, um, I can't remember exactly how many years, but teaching there. And um, yes, actually, there was, they were building at, in Trieste at the time a port, and a lot of the workers from the port, the company that was building it was um, Hungarian. And a lot of the workers were from Sambate. So he probably heard the joke in Trieste somewhere. Um, he also had a lot of Hungarian friends while he was in Trieste, actually. So Do you he think he sp spoke Hungarian or knew enough no, to? No, I think that he probably was fascinated by the um, you know, he was somebody who loved language, mm -hmm. obviously, and uh, all languages. But he, um, the complicated, you know, Hungarian is known as one of the most complicated languages. 
and it's it's um, you know traces are hard to compare to other languages. I think it's most similar. I think to Finnish, but um, it's you know what you read and what it sounds like. Everything is is very complicated. I, I that would have really appealed the humor of of that would have appealed to Joyce. Um, well, and just the musicality of it. I mean, when you s- spoke the words, it's quite musical. It, it is, yes, lilt, yeah. Which is kind of like Irish, right? Yes, well, I guess, yes. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit? Yeah. <laughs> so do you um, have any thoughts on why he made Leopold Bloom a Hungarian Jew? Mm. Um was it to raise the whole ideas of anti-Semitism? Um, or are we reading uh, into that ex post facto? No, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, conjecture of that point. Um, I mean, Hungarians appear a lot in his work, actually. Mm. So there was something about, you know, why Hungary? You know, well, Ireland maybe is periphery of one side of Europe and Hungary completely the periphery of the other, you know, these two kind of outliers, um, you know, with these, you know, two maybe complicated languages. And, um, you know, Joyce always felt that, you know, as Irish people were hindered having to speak English um, and that, you know, and as Irish speakers, we would have been able to express ourselves (laughs) a lot more um, authentically. So there might have been something around that. and for sure, you know, there's he based Leopold Bloom on some real people. And there's one particular um, person who, who like Leopold Bloom, had been born Jewish, had had converted to like Leopold Bloom. It has lots of different conversions of religion, and um, yeah, that's he's based on this one particular person in Dublin who also was selling advertisements for um, the Free Man's Journal. And this paper appears actually in the in the novel. Um, but Leopold Bloom isn't working for, he's working in another, um, selling advertisements for another inst- um, company. So um, I think, you know, this whole belonging, not belonging was something that Joyce, um, was dealing with himself. I mean, he he lived in Trieste and he lived in Paris and he lived in Zurich and all the places he lived in, he really only ever wrote about one place and that was Ireland. So, you know, this displacement, I guess, um, was something that he was thinking an awful lot about. Interesting. And, I mean, it's set, the book is set in Dublin. So anti-Semitism in Dublin, did that have anything to do with his thinking at all? Um, well, it must have played something in it because there's, you know, he, he raises it. But I think it wasn't so much that about, about anti-Semitism, really. It was more around um, Ireland at the time were trying to get home rule in 1904. Um, you know, he's, he's you know, writing the book eventually after 1916, where a lot of people he would have known would have taken part in the 1916 Rising who would have possibly... And being killed, and he would have been aware of this. So he set the book before that, um, where this whole he did not like this nationalistic sense that was coming out of Ireland at the time, and um, 
you know, this kind of Ireland for the Irish that was perhaps happening. Um, and it was something he was he was quite vocal about. But, um, you know, he very much remains an Irish man. But this very strong sense of, you know, as I said, the Irish for the Ir Ireland for the Irish was not something he really stood for. Interesting. Um, he was more. He was more. He was a bigger thinker. You know, he yeah. was. He was more a man of you know the world. Really, I think from that sense. Yeah, yeah, globalist mm -hmm. for sure. Before his time, maybe. Um, let's turn to Rakosi's march, which mm -hmm. is another video of yours, um, based on the same paragraph in in the Cyclops mm -hmm. episode. Yes but not about anti-Semitism from what I can tell, mm -hmm. having seen it. Um, do you want to describe, mm -hmm. it's, it's a really fanciful, slow, um, almost Beckett-like, I mm -hmm. think, it is, video yeah. that you made. So yeah. talk a little bit about it. Yeah, I think that's very a fair, very fair comment. It is a bit like a waiting for Godot kind of thing. Well, as I said, the in the pure codology, um, it deals with Leopold Bloom is leaving to go to this place. Sazhor means Borilash Degolas. And as he's leaving, the Irish Piper's play Come Back to Aaron, followed by Rakowski's March. Um, and the Irish pipes are called Illan pipes. And they, they're not the same as bagpipes. You play them sitting down. They have a bigger range than bagpipes. Um, and a wonderful instrument. And, and you don't blow into them, right? No, you you operate them through putting air through under your arm, basically, and um, you you as I said, you play them sitting down. So, um, and of course, Joyce was a was a musician um, and played the piano and sang, and um, he would have been aware that you could not play Rakowski's March on the pipes, um, but. Rakowski's March is an interesting song because, um, you know, it was actually the old unofficial Hungarian national anthem. And in 1870s, when um, there was the Hungarian, the Austro-Hungarian War, where Hungary was trying to get its independence from um, the Austrian um, Empire, after they failed, if you were playing that song, it was immediate imprisonment. It was really a call to arms. Um, so this song has this kind of cultural censorship um, attached to it. Um, and, you know, you, it, it's this joke you, you were speaking about. You know, you read this paragraph and you're not going to, unless you're an Illum Piper, you're not going to know, unless you're an Illum Piper that plays classical music. And most Dylan Pipers are not playing classical music. They're playing traditional Irish tunes. Amazing you know. Grace, perhaps. <laughs> not even, you know, it's like really, it's we're talking traditional Irish music. Um, and so I had two Ellen Pipers come and try to, without telling them what piece they were getting. Um, and I should say also, you know, in traditional Irish music, that you know, it is a, um, a point of pride that you know the music by heart. Like, it's not that you should read it. It's just not cool when you're having to read the music. So, so the guys are reading the music. They're having to listen to it and, and try and work out, can they make any sense of it on the pipes? And um, 
it's this very long take of this unfolding of trying to to you know make sense of the music um while you know the previous part is trying to make sense of the words and um language so um it's really interesting to see their optimism <laughs> slowly in front of you um, dissipate I, it's so interesting that you didn't tell them what was going on because or what music they were going to read because when you see them they're sitting in a very nice room with a rug on the floor and you hear this um piano music play mm -hmm. Marcosi's mm. uh, Rakosi's mm -hmm. March which mm -hmm. I've listened to this now I, I mm -hmm. so many times that it's like an earworm. It's, <laughs> there's a refrain that comes up mm -hmm. again and again, and it's like, oh, my goodness, I know mm -hmm. that now. And they're, they're very studious, the mm -hmm. two of them, and I think it would have been... It's so wonderful to see two people struggling with the same thing. Mm -hmm. they, they sit there side by side, and they have their sheets of music on the mm -hmm. floor in front of them, and one of them seems to get one part and the other one seems to get mm -hmm, a different part mm -hmm. and then none of they don't get anything mm -hmm. for a while and um mm -hmm. so the struggle combining the two of them i thought was really interesting mm -hmm. to have two rather than one mm -hmm. you could have done it with one mm -hmm. but it just seemed like there was mm -hmm. something pretty magical about having two mm -hmm. people in conversation mm -hmm. laughing struggling yeah and and they work a lot together um, and one of the pipers is Leonard Barry. He, he plays a lot in the States, actually. Um, and the other is Porrick, McGovern. Um, and they play often as well quite experimental, what would be considered more experimental in Irish um, music anyway. Um, so they would be more, um, I guess, flexible. Um, but also they're well used to each other and you can see that there's a kind of there's really this communication between them that really plays out um and there i had to because it does say in the text the irish pipers so i was like okay there's more than one um i wonder how that worked and i was trying to to see you know and i, I and rightly as you say that had only one been playing one of them would have given up a lot sooner I think uh, so. and the other one wouldn't have stopped like he was saying, you know, give me another 24 hours and I'll have mastered this or give me a week. He would have kept on going on. So it was this kind of, you know, who gives up first kind of thing. And then towards the end, they ask you, you're off camera, of mm -hmm. course, you're shooting the film, and they ask you a question. They At their moment of frustration, they're kind of laughing and they ask you about, well, now what did Joyce say and did mm -hmm. he really think this could happen? Mm -hmm. And then one of them, and I don't know which one, says, well, he's clearly, I'm paraphrasing, he's clearly getting at something, meaning Joyce, mm. but it's not the pipes. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought that's so interesting, and I wonder what you speculate mm -hmm. about what the music mm -hmm. is that he's mm. getting at here. Um, well, I think there is two things there. First of all, what was interesting about what happens in the Q&A, no, not Q&A, but the questions at the end that they ask me, and there was a lot more they asked that I ended just at that moment taking out. Um, is this whole thing about fiction and reality with Ulysses, you know, that um, Leopold Bloom is clearly a fictional person, but, you know, there are um, Bloomsday festivals where there is a plaque outside a house where, Bloom, where Leopold Bloom has supposedly lived. 
So this kind of fictional day has become this real day. And the events of the real day are known now through the fiction. Um, so, you know, that's kind of an interesting um, thing. And, and people's inability sometimes to understand that Ulysses is not real. So as many times I would say it's a novel, they're going like, yeah, but, you know, if somebody played this, we would have known about it. And I was like, well, clearly nobody played it because it's in a novel, you know. They said, yeah, but, you know, the best Irish Olympipers went to the States. And it was because the States at the time recorded the pipers that we have kept so much of the music. Um, and, and they talk a lot about this and some great pipers. And I was going, yeah, but this is in a novel, you know. <laughs> Nobody clearly played either songs. There was no musicians waving off Leopold Bloom to this fictional place, this fictional character to a fictional place. So, uh, um, and I assume, you know, given the history of the song, um, it would have been something that Joyce would have known, and it sits very well within the Cyclops episode, given that it's a song that... Um, was an unofficial national anthem, an unofficial call to arms, um, that it was kind of censored, um, that has this history to it, that that's something that he would have known um, for sure and would have appealed to him. But as I said, you know, Joyce says, you know, that Ulysses is there to provide us all with entertainment to work out what did he mean by half of these things and, and to keep us all occupied <laughs> for years to come. Well, you're dealing with it in a sort of absurd fashion with the two Pipers was, I think you would have been delighted with it, don't you? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, you showed both of these videos at Kevin Cavanaugh Gallery recently in mm -hmm. Dublin, along with some works on paper. So talk about the works on paper, because you were telling me earlier about them, and they sound quite amazing. Mm -hmm. So the, it, the two videos were shown um, linked with these 24 works on paper that actually form one work. And the, the work is called Whenceness, which is a word that um, is in Ulysses, one of Joyce's, one of his many made up words, but it's, it's a lovely word, I think. Um, and it means kind of the origin of something, you know, where, where the whenceness of something, where, where the thing came from, emerged from. And the works on paper are actually on original newspaper from 1904, the 16th of June, 1904, um, which is the day that Ulysses unfolds. And there's 24 representing the kind of the 24 hours that the book unfolds over this one particular day. And the works on paper are all kind of highlighting things, um, you know, either to do with, uh, I should say the, the papers are from the, um, all of them are the um, English Times because there's no original newspaper left in Ireland from that day. Um, the English newspaper was of extremely good quality because it was mostly in clubs, air, airmen's clubs, army clubs, and was passed around. But I also have newspaper, one from Scotland and one from, the, from Yorkshire, the Yorkshire Express, I think it's called. Um, which are really bad quality and crumbling every time I, I touch them. But I have used these two to collage with the, um, with the others. Um, 
And the, what I've done with the newspapers is really highlight either the issues that are being addressed uh, that come up um, in Ulysses. So, for example, in Cyclops, there's this horse race that happens, the, the gold cup where throwaway the outsider, the dark horse, wins. And, of course, Ble Leopold Bloom is the dark horse um, at the same time. And he wins. So this is kind of thing, you know, that even though what's unfolding at home may not seem like he's winning, <laughs> the Gold Cup, the dark horse wins. And um, so I'm high, I pick out the horse race. So the real, you know, the, all the horses that were in it. And I cut the paper from the, day, the next day that gives the account of what happened to the horse race. Um, you know, I pick out things like home rule, um, issues around... You know, there was a, the, that particular day, there was 2,000 emigrants sent back from Ellis Island back to Italy. So I'm picking out things as well that are still contemporary that we're dealing with, like issues in Armenia, issues of uh, emigration, um, you know, issues of... And I, I specifically am dealing with things like um, nation, people, culture. How did you even find these newspapers? Did you go on eBay or was it internet? Yeah, internet. There's, there's there's specialists, you know, that you can buy mm -hmm. things from. You know, Anything. the internet, the specialists for everything, as we know. So yes, it was um, it was 